Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. My guest today is Dr. Travis Brown. Dr. Brown works for ClinPath Pathology in South Australia and also co-hosts a podcast called This Pathological Life. Today on the show, we'll talk about that podcast and we'll also learn about pathology in Australia and how it compares to how it's done here in the U.S. Then after the show, stay tuned for a preview of our upcoming episode with Gina Bond. All right, here's Dr. Travis Brown. All right, I am here with Dr. Travis Brown, who is uh, in Adelaide, Australia. So uh, good morning to you. Uh, morning, Dennis. You, you're the host of a podcast, you along with uh, Steve there, and it's called This Pathological Life. And you start the show with uh, the quote, every disease has its own story to tell. And we'll get into that. But I, I want to hear your story first. So can you tell me, <laughs> how, how was it that you uh, came to go to medical school? And let's talk about the process of medical school in Australia. No, that sounds good. Sure. I, uh, if I'm honest, I never really thought about medicine as a career. I was uh, growing up in Ballarat, which is a, a country town in, in Victoria. And uh, as far as I was concerned, I was going to play professional basketball. So uh, a well-watched well NCAA, well-watched NBA. Uh, I didn't have any talent, so that was a little bit of a, a problem. Uh, but <laughs> what I ended up doing was I just fell into, at the time, it was commerce and computing and went to university to do that. I was still playing my basketball at that point in time. So, you know, still wanting to do it, be a walk-on over, you know, I was at the time, this was when you had the Fab Five and uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan Wolverines, and geez, oh, sure. we, we idolized them. Okay. Uh, and what ended up happening was I finished the degree. I didn't get a call from uh, the Michigan uh, <laughs> University. Uh, and I went into business for two years. But the hours I was working there, I was like, well, if I'm going to work these hours, why why am I uh, going to do this? I'll do something that I feel is a little bit more beneficial uh, or a little bit more rewarding for, for, for myself. So I went back and did a science degree, uh, initially with the intention of doing physio, but then jumped across and thought, oh, medicine, get all the toys. So uh, right. we jumped into uh, fortunately got into medicine uh, and then from there uh, it was sort of finding my way into pathology. So to answer your question, there's there's two ways we get into medicine through in Australia. The first is as an undergraduate, so normally from what we call year 12. I think you guys call it seniors, is that right? Senior, you're a senior in high school? Yeah, Yeah. and so what you would do is you would apply – get into an undergraduate degree uh, in medicine, and which is six years. And it's clearly gone past that point. And so you can do a graduate entry medicine. So they take your grade point average or your last, you know, your most recent degree. And then you do a test and you do a, uh, an interview uh, and you can get in through to, to medicine to do it that way. It's a four-year degree after that. So that's what I, that's how I got into. It was jumping through all different hoops. I still haven't got the call from the NCAA or the NBA, but uh, I've managed to find a way. So uh, enjoying it uh, at the moment. But um, yeah, so that's, that's the way you can get into medicine through in, in Australia. And we actually do have 
uh, a number of Canadian students that come across uh, and and study over here. I don't think so much American, but uh, yeah, they're, they're the avenues to get into medicine here. Because okay. you you have pre pre med over there or, or something. Is that is that there in medicine? But it's not. I'm, I'm not quite sure how that works. It's it's like the recommended program of study in order to get into a, a medical school. Like it'll it'll give you the the coursework that most of the medical schools will want you to have. So you'll be more uh, desirable, I, I, I guess. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So yeah. did you intend to, if the basketball thing had worked out, did you want to come over here to the U.S.? Or, oh, or is there, there a pro league? No, no, no absolutely. My, my, as I say, my, my brother had uh, had the talent. I had the work ethic, and together we went nowhere. So uh, <laughs> it was okay. one, of, one of those ones where, no, 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 I was looking. I, I remember Jeff Hornacek. So he was, you know, he was a walk-on, so you can pay your way over. Uh, mm. the, it was interesting because I remember, though, that, this, uh, I'm sure it hasn't changed, but I remember even looking at the, you know, universities. Like, oh, it's yeah. At that time, it was something to the effect of like thirty or forty thousand per year to come across as a walk. And I was like, wow, you know, mum, dad, can you fork that out? And they, you can go to a university pretty much free here. Um, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but don't have the opportunity. Um, so, needless to say, no, it was it was uh, you know lived and breathed basketball. Uh, and uh, no, no, I, as I say, I still enjoy it. My boys are now, I've got two boys who are eight and nine years old, and we're just starting to get back into watching, uh, you know, basketball, and they're playing it. So we, we got to see a, a lot of Zion Williams in in Duke, uh, and, uh, you know, they're just starting to enjoy it. So no, 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 it's still, a, it's still a, a very big love and a passion. Okay, okay. So, all right, so you mentioned you, you uh, found your way into pathology. How did that happen? So when in, in medical school, it was, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. It, it, when you're in an area, you find out you keep on doing a ward round and some people are of the, oh, I'd love to do that one. And then they go to the next ward. Oh, I'd love to do that one. Unfortunately, I was the opposite. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that one. I really don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and I had an inspiring lecturer. Her name was Professor Jane Dahlstrom, who was always nice, who was always lovely, always had time for students. Uh, and would always explain things uh, that made sense. Uh, and that was where pathology comes in. You sit there and just go, you know, you look at physiology, but you would sit there and go, okay, so blood pressure would go up and down. Okay, well, they've got, you know, a cardiomyopathy. Well, what explains why it's where it is? And so I would always go back to the pathology textbooks. And that was what pathology is to me. It was understanding. It was knowing that, this is how it works when we get a disease in this. Oh, this is the effect. And so you could actually make sense of it, you know, extrapolate uh, why it behaved how it was. So it made sense. And I enjoyed that part of it. It was, it was academic. And, and what I found was in the hospitals, sometimes it's just the challenge of getting things done. It wasn't necessarily, it, it was patient care, but it was just trying to get, you know, CTs and MRIs and just getting things done for the patient. It was the challenge. It wasn't the diagnosis because as soon as they're in the ED department, they're the undifferentiated patient there. But once they're on the cardiac ward, you know they've got cardiac problems. So it wasn't a diagnostic challenge. Whereas I came into pathology, you get a slide under the microscope. It is, what is this? What mm -hmm. is going on here? You know, you get an infectious disease. You know, what's this organism? 
so it was asking the questions that I found a lot more interesting. And, you know, I'd even ask consultants on the ward when I was working like, you know, colorectal surgery, do you like their job? Do you like your job? And it was sometimes you get an equivocal answer and it was like, you know, but they were also there 60 or 70 hours. You talk to pathologists and they enjoy their job. Uh, they have a balanced lifestyle. Uh, they have a family life. Uh, they often have other interests, which are many and varied. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, I, I, as I say, I'm able to have weekends and go and watch uh, the, the boys play basketball. So it's, I found it a very good life balance uh, getting into it. That being said, uh, it's a hard uh, area to get involved in because effectively you're trying to memorize encyclopedias. Uh, it's a lot of visual memory, uh, particularly for anatomical pathology. But I do general pathology, so I work in chemistry, microbiology, uh, hematology, and anatomical pathology, so you get that wide experience. I'm not the specialist in the area, but we have those when the the question becomes so specific. Uh, We go and chat to them and say, here, (laughs) can you help this endocrinologist because it's a little bit beyond my knowledge. So you just have to be willing to know your limitations, and I think that's the main part of a, a general pathologist. Sure, sure. I, I definitely think that's a similarity here in the U.S. Uh, pathologists, and it really all lab staff. I think uh, we all like our jobs for for the most part, and and we we are able to have a life outside of the lab, and, and that's important too. Yeah, no, look, it, it is. Uh, it, it's one of those things. Even in doctors in general, you find that um, their health uh, is is important to have a balanced lifestyle because it puts into perspective if, if you don't haven't, haven't recharged your, your batteries, you know, how yes. can you, uh, you know, give all the needs you do for the patients? And, and that's what I found, you know, as a junior doctor, you know, running around the wards, uh, I'd get to the point where I was just so exhausted by the end of the day, you didn't have time to give, you know, family or your hobby. You just wanted to sort of not talk to anyone. Right. Uh, and was like, you know, and not only that, then you would start to do study and exams. Uh, on top of that, and then at the end of that, you become the most junior consultant, and you have to, earn, you know, get your practice. Like, oh, okay, I don't, think, I don't think that's the way I want to go down. So, um, yes, absolutely, having a balanced lifestyle and having things that you enjoy outside of work is critical. Mm-hmm. So, and you had so much extra free time, you decided to start a podcast. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, look, this is this was this was a this was a brainchild of uh, of Brooke Kenny, one of our executives, and she's a pre analytics person and special projects. And uh, our engagement and marketing lead, uh, Charlie Robinson, they had a they had a vision that they wanted to do a, a podcast. And then we've we've got Steve, who is our our extraordinaire. So he's a he's an Adelaidean personality, well known podcaster. And so we got him on board uh, where episode uh, 307, where, where he, they got us with uh, the executive, uh, Fergus Whitehead and, and Davika Thomas, uh, our chemical pathologist and myself. And I just changed organizations and they said, hey, do you want to do an interview? Um, I think I said no. And then said, no, do it. <laughs> I was like, all right, give it a go. Um, and then we went on that. And then after that, they said, hey, are you interested in going a little bit further with doing that? And then uh, Steve, um, who's a, who's an excellent personality, he helps guide me. And so I'm the, uh, you know, I get to play with stories and, uh, and if anything is, I love stories. I love listening to, you know, screenwriting 
uh, podcast, like, uh, you know, uh, script notes with, with John August and, and Craig Mason. They're personalities who are Hollywood, Hollywood um, screenwriters, but they tell you how to craft a story. And stories in medicine are just, uh, they're so colourful. There's so many varied personalities that as soon as you start to dig in it, you find the, the colour, uh, you find the personalities. Uh, it's it's incredible, and and you know I've only scratched the surface. We're done. Uh, I think we've recorded about twelve, fifteen. But mm-hmm. you you start to pull out the the brilliance of people. Sometimes even the accidental discoveries, uh, and it's just incredible just to to go down. So yeah, it's this is this is me in my little playground <laughs> with coming up with it. And as I say, I've got Steve to to guide me going along, uh, and and we really appreciate it. So hopefully some of the fun comes through. Of the stories, some of them are heartbreaking, but um, yeah. well, a lot of them are medicine, so uh, and pathology. But uh, no, no, it's uh, it, it's really enjoyable, and hopefully that comes across. Okay, was the way that you format the show was that all kind of planned in advance, or did did that evolve over time? That's that's evolved. So we we end up putting it into almost, and again, this is you know storytelling. Uh, you know yeah. this. Uh, we, were, we were in a discussion one time and, uh, you know, how to, you know, draw up a stro- story. And, you know, I just said an off-the-cuff statement that, oh, you know, you, gonorrhea is mentioned in the Bible. And, I, you know, as Steve and Charlie looked at me and said, what, what are you talking about? I said, well, gonorrhea is mentioned in the Bible. I said, where? Well, there's, and I said, Leviticus. Uh, and they said, well, you know, and I said, well, it, it turns about, you know, talks about a person being, uh, unclean, they've got persistence of seed or persistence of semen. And they're sort of like, you know, that is the symptoms of gonorrhea. And it's just like, well, <laughs> and you just sit there and just, when you when you extrapolate pathology and medicine, it has impacted every part of society. Uh, you know, it, it has shaped which way we're going. And you you don't sometimes even know that it's that it's there and it's it's shaped it. And I guess that's what we're what we're trying to do. So the, the structure is such that we we have a story uh, that we want to tell at the start. In the middle, we look at the impact or some aspect of that, and then hopefully by the third, what what is the learning objective? Objective, what is where has this gone? Or you know, if it's a current disease, what do we know about it now? And, and we get in some experts from over here. We actually have uh, some of the uh, episodes uh, permit GPs to get uh, self learning uh, points. So what we call uh, continuous professional education. Uh, they'll get okay. one point from listening, and, and a few of that. And that's that's when we get the expert to say, "Here's what the disease has uh, is doing. Here's what you, the critical things to know about." Um, and sometimes I just have a flight of fancy and w- with with the you know Act Three and just say, "This is the fun part of it. Uh, this is what we learned from it." So yeah, that's it's it's drawn out through story. Um, what we understand from it, what we learn. Uh-huh. And and sometimes you use little uh, like sound bites in in between yep. the the acts as you call them, uh, which I think is an, a really nice touch that gives a very um, kind of a theatrical sort of. Uh, that's yeah, that, that's that's the the Steve uh, the Steve brilliance. So I, I sort of okay. we often you know have, have come across it, um, and we say to Steve, look, uh, this is what I'm thinking of, and and we get some. Uh, sound bites for for the typhoid Mary. He he had a contact who was uh, who was Irish, uh, and we read out her letter, and so we we inserted that. So there, there's some 
just fantastic clips that are out there that are you know you can you can get permission to use or, or have the rights to use, uh, and it really does put sort of some colour into the story. So yeah, we we um, I, I love those little clips. Uh, they're they're great, and as I say, Steve. Fortunately, because of the information age now, there's there's so much online and there's so much uh, learning to be done. Uh, you can you can often find something that's really you know you would never be able to find you know thirty or forty years ago, but now it, you know with with the the age that it is, it's it's well you know it's it's easy for me to say because Steve has to go and find it, but uh, <laughs> we can direct it and we, we find that really uh, you know some some gems. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to sort of compare and contrast, you know, the differences between the Australian and American uh, medical systems and pathology systems in particular. And here in the U.S., we have uh, the College of American Pathologists and then the American Society for Clinical Pathology. Um, and those are sort of the, I don't want to say the governing bodies, but kind of the overseeing bodies of pathology and lab medicine. And you have something similar there in Australia, is that right? That's right. That's right. So we have the, the Royal College. So, you know, being under the, the, the colonial area still, so everything's Royal Colleges. So Royal Colleges of GPs and Royal Colleges of, you know, obstetrics and gynecology. So ours is the Royal College of uh, Australasia. So uh, with regards to pathologists, so it's called Royal College of Pathologists of Australia, so RCPA. Uh, it's our pretty much our governing body, looking after the professional organisation that is of pathologists. But we also have uh, what's called NATA, um, and that's the accreditation service uh, that goes around. Uh, that's our national testing authority, uh, okay. and that's they're the ones who you know every eighteen months we have a, a standard that they compare against. It's called ISO one five one eight nine, and so that's the pretty much the auditing body that uh looks and says are you doing this here's the issues or here's not the issues and you you have to get it reaccredited every you know uh, 12 to 18 months uh and that's that's how sort of our governing body works um there are guidelines around we we uh, do have lots of direction with regards to uh you know looking to the us so you know like cancer guidelines and protocols uh, we use all the protocols from there just because they're, they're so well researched and evidence-based that the guidelines that we use come from America. And I think even, you know, conferences, like, I mean, we're a, you know, country of 25 million people. Um, I think your mm -hmm. conferences have literally thousands of people. Yes. <laughs> I think we have yes. one, big, one big conference that gets about a thousand, but uh, as I say, one time, uh, I'll be amazed to see what does, what does, you know, having several thousand people at a conference actually look like. I mean, the auditorium must be huge i'm not quite sure what that would be like it, it's unbelievable yes um yeah. I, you mentioned was it nata uh, yep yep nata yep okay yeah we have something that's the uh the cap here we do or or i guess depending on your lab certification could be something else called clia but yeah it's every two years you get inspected do they go through over there they go through like your procedure manuals and then they watch the staff yeah. actually doing the work and all that stuff it, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, it's a, it can be a bit of a nerve-wracking procedure. I mean, oh, yeah, effectively, yeah, have an audit and you see what, what you've done right and what you've done wrong and here's the issues. We get uh, what they call conditions and minor conditions, uh, you know, fix this up or, you know. So, yes, uh, it, it is. We, we have people who volunteer to be accredited uh, mm -hmm. and what they, uh, you know, go around, they visit an area 
Um, and then you have NATA assessors themselves, as well as NATA assessors who are volunteers, uh, generally other scientists or pathologists. And yeah, they, they go through all the procedures, all the documentation, make sure everything's signed off and correctly. So it's a, well, it's, it's quite a little bit of a, uh, a change because, you know, when I first left business, I went into auditing and now I've gone back all the way around and seeing auditing again. So it's, uh, you know, it closes a circle really. Do you think your experience with auditing, did that help you at all in now being a pathologist? It, it does because you realize um, what assessors realize is important or say what is important. You realize the importance of documentation uh, and you realize that sometimes, you know, if you know something's been done, it's, you know, but you haven't written it down, well, that's a problem because if you don't turn up the next day, someone doesn't know that it's been done. So there is important uh, aspects of it. And yes, it does. Uh, you know, business, that, that was the thing. I, I went into business uh, and, and probably coming out of medicine, I didn't want anything to do with business. And then you realize actually everything underpins, uh, business underpins everything. So it's a, it's a good experience because even in our public institutions, uh, there's still a limited amount of money. Uh, and, and so trying to utilize the resources as best you can, yes, business plays a little bit of a, uh, a role in that, even though it's not foremost, uh, you know, there to make money. But sometimes you need to be able to use the money that you do uh, as well as you can. So uh, I mean that we we have. I don't know if you have that in the US. We have public and private institutions that are involved in health. So when when we say public, what we're talking about is that the government funds them to to operate. Uh, they can yeah. operate tend tend not to be um, at a profit, but they tend to lose a little bit of money. It just depends. On, they try to utilize that. Uh, as best they can. Ultimately, the aim is there to to, to not take no, cost too much money, but it's a public service. Uh, you don't have? Do you have public hospitals as such, or is it mainly a private billing service? It is mainly private, but we do have some public hospitals. There's the uh, the VA system, the Veterans Administration system, right. yeah. which is yeah. um, you know mostly for military veterans, and then. Uh, you know, some teaching hospitals that are run through public universities. So that that right. might be similar to, to what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the thing. Like, I, I believe one of your political parties is considering, you know, Medicare for all and, and billing uh, yeah. at the moment. That's what that looks like is effectively the government is the funder of the organization and the hospital bills the government to say, you know, if we go into emergency to department here, uh, you know, need a procedure or something and it's a public institution, the hospital has a whole billing service and they build, a, you know, Medicare for that and there's no cost to the patient. If you're uh, private, then there usually is a cost to the patient, but that's also because we have private health insurance. So it's a, it's a little bit, uh, I think it's a very different because effectively what happens is the government for our drugs that we have, they set the price. So, you know, to get on what we call the PBS, our pharmaceutical benefits scheme, uh, the government actually costs the drugs and says this is approved for service. So a GP can uh, prescribe this, this, this medication for this organisation and you can use it and there might be a sort of a co-payment, $20 or $30 when they get a prescription filled. Um, but the government uh, pays for, for that because it's approved for use. But billing in pathology is also a little bit of a, a, an interesting one because 
that is uh, also funded by the um, by the government under the Medicare schedule. Uh, but we have what, uh, you know, the government will sit down and say, we're going to pay this for this test, we're going to pay this for this test and pay this for that third test. And so that's all agreed upon. But um, what what people might not know about is, is a, a procedure called CONI. So we have general practitioners here uh, who are pretty much our primary care physicians. And what happens with them is they'll, you know, uh, people can just make appointments with them, phone up, uh, see their general practitioner, and they can either prescribe medication, like on the PBS, or request tests. Now, if you're a general practitioner, you can request anywhere from, you know, one test to 20, 30, 40. But when it comes to billing uh, for general practitioners, pathology organisations uh, can only bill the government for the top three expensive tests, and everything else gets absorbed. So what yeah, that means is... It's absorbed by who? By the pathology company. So if I've got 10 tests uh, coming through on a request slip, the top three most expensive I can bill the government for. The seven other ones we just absorb as a cost. Uh, and then that's how <laughs> our billing system oh. works for GP. So specialists are a bit different. You can bill everything the, the specialist uh, requests. But for the GPs, uh, the only the top three. So if someone orders 35 tests, Yes, uh, you know, you'll have 32 that are coned out and uh, you just have to absorb it as an organisation. So it's a, it's a, I don't know if that will, that would uh, catch on in America, but um, I, I mean, I've, some people have explained it to me, like going into a shopping centre, you know, getting a trolley full and then just saying to the cashier, oh, I'm only going to pay for the most three expensive and then walk out. But, you know, it works well over here because it, you know, keeps the, the costs down. Um, just uh -huh. the pathology organisations have to have to manage um, their costs in that area. Do you somehow get compensated for the, the the for just absorbing those costs, or is that just part of doing business? No, that's that's part of doing business in pathology here. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's uh, <laughs> look, it, it, it's I think it was in the 1980s or you know 99s. I actually tried to find out when coning happened, but the problem is you know Google keeps on going. Are you talking about cloning? I'm like, no, I'm really not. And it's actually quite a, a hard thing because it's such a small component uh, that's mm -hmm. sort of buried. But uh, no, no, it's uh, that's the the price of pathology in in this area. It's Again, that's that's uh, that's just how it works. Uh, look, I'm I'm sure there were there were many discussions to be had when it was when it was proposed. Um, sure. But yeah, that's that's how our um, how our billing system works, and that's how you know the government will actually look at this cost and say, oh, you know, how do we cut this a little bit more? And our pathology companies will go, well, no, not going to do that, or you know. So there's always mm -hmm. the the political game to be played. But yes, that's that's how uh, pathology companies operate in in Australia. So it sounds like then everybody, including the government, is trying to keep doing whatever they can to keep costs down because that's everybody right. that's has, right. yeah. has a stake it, in it's, That's right. That's right. So, I mean, the we we have, you know, what, what it's called bulk billing over here and, you know, the GP can tick on the request, the pathology request form, you know, please bulk bill here. Patients tend to get very upset if they get sent a bill, uh, you know, that you know, for pathology service when when you actually find out how much it all actually costs. But uh, the vast majority of Medicare, you know, bulk build, that's that's how we get used to it. We, you, but it's a system that works. Uh, it works for us. Um, anytime mm -hmm. anyone talks about 
uh, you know, these costs are, you know, getting out of control. You know, the pathology companies, uh, you know, and our, and our, you know, RCPA turn around and say, well, look, we actually don't cost that much and we don't, but it's, uh, you know, trying to cut down costs. You always have that political, you know, give and take. But it, it is, yes, it is a, one of those things that, yes, they're, they're interested in cutting costs for, the, for, for patients and having organisations run, but at the same point in time, pathology companies need to operate and, you know, if you make something pretty much too expensive to run, then you won't have a service. So it certainly is a balancing act. Okay, that makes sense. I'd like to talk a little bit about other lab staff, like in addition to pathologists. And I know the pathology, what, what we call pathology residents, you, you call them registrars, is that is that right? Yeah, so we, we have, uh, the, the tier is, uh, with regards to a system, we have uh, technical assistants uh, and uh, as well as scientists. So they tend to be laboratory-based staff. You, you have collectors, which tend to be people trained in taking venous section, and you know they they may have a nursing background, or they must might just be trained in in taking blood, or or you know operating out of a collection centre. Uh, we then have our so then go scientists, and you can have very varied levels of experience with scientists so uh, you know someone that's just come out from you know a degree um, all the way to someone that had 20 years worth of experience uh, but then we have registrars so they're trainee uh, pathologists so they'll have right. gone through medical school uh, applied for a training program so in australia that's state-based uh, so you know you'll try and get onto a program and you know go to a you know, tertiary hospital or, you know, a private organisation and they'll train you for about five years, assuming you pass all your exams in, in, in time and <laughs> no no hiccups. From there, you learn. Now, so what we call, you know, if you're an anatomical pathologist, you're doing cut-up, which I think you guys call grossing. You, you're yes, but your term is a lot better. I love it. I'm going to try to popularise it here. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, with, with cut-up, um, and, and you know you'll get trained in in handling the specimens there. Uh, if you're a chemical pathology registrar, you'll you'll get uh, experience in the the chemistry side, and same for micro hematology. Okay. Hematologists uh, are dual trained, so they will do a physician training as well as you know spend a I think it's two years in the laboratory. And yeah, so I mean you've got immunology in in there as well, so. It's it takes about five years once you're into the program, and then you know all going well. You finish your exams and your time, and you go into consultantship. But uh, I need to find out a little bit more um, about this. is a It's a pathology assistant job because I think that sounds like a, a fantastic. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So that's what I do. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually we call it pathologist assistant. So we do the we do we do the cut up. Um, and that's for, for most of us, that's all that we do, but we also, some of us do, uh, autopsies some get into management into, you know, teaching we actually, a, a lot of PAs will teach, uh, residents or, or registrars, um, over here. Um, yeah. yeah, but so for us, that's a, it's a master's level education. So you, you know, uh, you have the, the four year bachelor's degree and then it's a two-year program on top of that the, the pathologist assistant program and then it's a, a, a national certification exam 
So when you, when you say master's, so you'll have done a degree and then you apply, or is it actually a d- degree that you go straight into and sort of master's? You, you apply. It's actually there. We have, I think there's 12 or 13 programs in the U.S. and Canada. Right. There's there's two in Canada um, that, that also, they're part of our kind of certification umbrella. Um, yeah. yeah, but you you have to apply and, and it's uh, these days it's it's pretty competitive because it's a we're, we're kind of an up and coming field um, yeah. and, and yeah. we're it's a high demand. Yeah. So, so you work at now, do you work at hospitals? Do you work at private organizations? Both, really. I mean, I work at an academic hospital here in Milwaukee, yeah. but yeah, people work work all over. Some work in, in research institutions. And there's some that work at uh, medical examiner's offices too. Oh, yeah, geez. So did you did you have to do a segment in forensic pathology or is that an optional? It's optional. I mean, you have to learn uh, autopsy procedures. Yeah. But yeah. Um, in, the, in the programs now, you do a rotation at the whatever the local medical examiner's office is. But the additional sort of forensic training, it's it's limited right now. Yeah. There, there's only there's only a few places that actually employ PAs in in a forensic setting, um, but yeah, they do have their additional training there. So you, not something you're thinking of. I, I when I did forensics, I, I I think I got about two minutes ago. I'm not. This isn't for me. <laughs> oh, I, I would love to do it actually. <laughs> yeah, you uh, want to be forensic? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, no, it's, I, I I remember I remember walking in and sort of, you know, into the change room and someone sort of sniffed the air and went, Oh, there's a decomp. I was like, what is that? And I said, Oh, it's a body that's decomposed for a while and it's like and it's just like, no, nah, this isn't gonna work. Um <laughs> it's not gonna, Really? No, I, I oh, as I say, yeah, no, no. It, it was just a a side of, you know, you literally saw the newspaper and you knew what was coming in the next day for, for a forensic pathologist to to examine NATO. It was I I find it as an academic fascinating field. Like when they talk about, you know, gunshot wounds as and you know reflections off air where they have to actually work that out. I find that fascinating. But the actual job is I I love and appreciate what forensic pathologists do. I, and the scientists and the technicians, but oh, I couldn't do it. No. <laughs> No, I mean, I think actually this brings up a good point. You know, over here, there's a a shortage of forensic pathologists and uh, actually general pathologists as well. And I th- that's for us, the, the pathologist assistants, that's kind of where we sort of can fill in that gap a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. have that there in Australia? Is there a shortage of pathologists? The the pathologists um, in areas there are we we have real trouble getting pathologists out to regional areas and again doing a, a general pathology was was ultimately where I, where I was aiming to go I was going to go you know at the time back to country Victoria that's where I grew up and that's where I was going to have have you know get get my boys to to grow up uh, with my wife and or just going to go that way and the opportunity came to Adelaide so. You know, you get a bit of a bigger place. You know, we have about a million people in Adelaide, uh, so you get just a few more options of schools and you know places to live. So that's worked mm-hmm. for us well. But no, no, forensic pathologists are you know really hard to to find, and I, I think it's a really tough job. Like I do remember just talking to to forensic pathologists and say, "How do you manage?" Uh, and they say, "Yeah, you you know," uh, and a few of them would say, "Oh, you you end up have counselling because." 
uh, some of the stuff that uh, they they see, you know, you, yeah. Sure. I don't think there's any other way. It's just traumatic. So, yes, it was. Uh, there is a shortage. I think once you start getting, you know, when as soon as you start getting, you know, taking five or six or seven years of people training after they've done it, uh, you know, an undergraduate, they're often at a time where they're either having children or family and to get people to go somewhere else, you know, to to uplift is is always a you know and move is always a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, that and that's where you know, as I say, you know, PAs would be fantastic, and that's why general pathologists work out well because often they can, uh, you know, triage a problem. Say, no, this is actually a specialist area. Uh, go off into that. I, I think that there's a real need for for a sort of an interim solution so that people can then work in areas where it's needed uh, and then say, no, this is this needs to go here or no, we can deal with this here. That's a, no, that would be, again, yeah, encourage that all the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, having something like a, like a PA position would be accepted there? I, I think it would be, I, yeah, I think it's a fantastic idea. I, but not only that, you know, we have scientists that will end up doing that kind of a role uh, mm -hmm. and they'll be, they'll be, senior scientist, but to actually have a, a recognition, a qualification, I think it's a fantastic idea because then it shows that someone has trained in an area and there's recognition that they've, they've done that uh, as opposed to something that's done um, by, through experience or by default. Uh, you know, if you have a qualification, then you know what people can and can't do. So I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, no, I'll, be, I'll be pushing that over here. So, you know, we should have this, you know, with uh, with our college to, um, you know, to recognise it because we have had scientists uh, incorporated into the, the Royal College. Something like this would just give recognition to people who are who are working in the field. It's a great idea. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that does sound like a great idea. Let's move on then to uh, talk a little bit about COVID and how it affected both of our countries and uh, yeah. our sort of our country's response to that yeah um, okay the, the first thing i wanted to ask about is so we've got here here in the u.s at the food and drug administration or the fda and they regulate among other things laboratory tests do you have something similar there and how was how did that work at the beginning of the covid testing so our equivalent over here of your fda is called our uh, therapeutics uh Guidance, so a TGA uh, guidance administration. So, uh, okay. and it's in, in involved in testing and regulations, and you know, it's the, the PBS falls under that. So, what happened when COVID struck was one of our reference laboratories. It's called Vigil, so our Victorian uh, Infectious Disease Reference Laboratory. Uh, so, that's a Victorian-based uh, organisation. Uh, so, I, I wonder if that's is that similar to our uh, Centers for Disease Control. It will be, yeah, yeah. So they're, okay. they're the, okay. one of the main organisations that, when we say reference laboratory, even pathology organisations send them stuff that's too hard to, well, not too hard, but specialised. Um, oh, gotcha. you know, okay. So they, I, I have no idea, but somehow they got access to a, a test very quickly, um, even when it was just in its in its infancy, and they started testing for it very quickly. So. Once you've got a reference laboratory uh, who has a test that now it must have been approved somehow. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't know the inner workings, but 
NASA would have said, okay, validate this test. How we validate this test? You know, China even uh, released in January the the whole genome of the of COVID, which was obviously they had been doing some research at the time. You know, I think it was early December that they first noticed the first case. By the you know thirty first of December, they announced uh, that yeah, they've got you know uh, unknown cause of you know this pulmonary and. Uh, lo and behold, they end up saying, here's COVID. So we were able to get access to a test. And as soon as you got the reference laboratory to have a valid test, then you can compare all the other tests that will then come through. So uh, every organisation was able to compare uh, their tests and validate their tests. So we once we got that reference test, so we had a, the pandemic was announced on the 11th of uh, March. And then our borders were closed in uh, Australia at the 20th of March. So nine days for the government to sort of say, right, shut it down. We went into uh, stage restrictions at that point in time, uh, and it was varied uh, as to where cases were found. But we were getting approved tests at that point in time. So, you know, Victoria had a reference test. Uh, South Australia, our reference laboratory over here, was then comparing tests, and then they got their test, and it just spread through there. So we were able to do testing, and like everywhere, it started slowly, but then you're up to several thousands a day. But my my understanding is you're uh, in the US, you have quite a number of cases per day, and um, I think that that would be a significant challenge just to do any of the testing. How is that going for you for, for you guys in the US? Um, right now, then the last seven days, there's been 289,000, well, almost 290,000 uh, new cases in the last seven days. Wow. And right. we've got a total, the total number was, it's close to 6 million right now. Right. Okay. As, so, as of today. yeah. So, what, what our cases, so we're the total amount of cases that we've had in Australia over the last six months is uh, 25,000. Um, getting up to 26,000. So we've done about 6.2 million tests. And like in the past 24 hours, you know, 60, uh, 67,000 tests in the past 24 hours. The amount of cases that Australia had just on this weekend in one day was 112. So the restrictions have worked. See the the whole thing like we we uh, Victoria is still in shutdown because they were getting up to uh, three or four hundred cases per day, and so they went to stage stage four restrictions, which effectively means no one can go anywhere except for essential services. You can't okay. move, you know, five kilometers away from your house, uh, and that's it. You know, schools. Uh, Melbourne was shut down, so schools were done. You know, remote remote learning. They have now just dipped below 100 cases per day. So that's sort of a, a success, but that's taken them three or four weeks. Quite a lot of political capital, capital from the you know, Victorian government at that point in time. If you, if you think about it this way, if you have, um, you know, 400 cases, let's assume they have 10, you know, contacts each. Well, you know, that's 4,000 tests that you need to be doing on just those people. And you add that up, uh, you know, do that by two or three times. Just the sheer amount of testing and contact tracing will just become unmanageable. So when when they were talking about, you know, four hundred tests, they were saying we're at the brink of being able to not trace or contact trace people. 
Um, and this is when people were in lockdown, so you would kind of know. We, we had a, an app um, that's meant to do tracing, debatable and you know controversial as to whether it was how useful it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're only it, it's it's you know you get these little crop ups every once in a while. But yeah, people start to get very nervous if it starts getting over ten or twenty cases uh, in an area. But to, to have the the amount that you guys are having is just um, that's that's pretty phenomenal. It's what's the the feel like there? Is it is it accepted and that's that's just how it's going, or is there some concern? Uh, it I I think it depend depends where you are. Um, I know. So there in Australia, you have what six? Are they called states? Yeah, or, yeah. So or, six states, three regions. territories. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. we've got. So we've got fifty. Um, and it yeah. seems like state to state, you've got very, very different opinions about the seriousness of this, and even within a state, uh, certain yeah. cities. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to. You don't really have mm-hmm. a nationwide kind of opinion. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, here in South Australia, so yeah, we have, we have six states. So, I mean, again, we're, we're a population of, you know, uh, 25 million people. I mean, you've got, uh, I checked it out, you know, 18 million in New York, like, you know, in, right. a, in a condensed area, you, you sit there and just go for something that spreads through, as far as we know, droplets, uh, you know, we're much more spread out, in which case you sit there and go, social distancing will be just easier in a, in a larger country. You know, I mean, we're, we're here in South Australia. So as I said, we've got a million people here. South Australia, our whole, you know, state has, you know, 1.7 million people. I mean, the most cases, we've, total cases we've had is, uh, you know, 463, one active oh, wow. cases. You know, we've had four deaths and we've done, you know, 370,000 tests with, you know, daily tests of about 40,000. Now, I did hear a cynical comment, uh, you know, the other day. It's like, you know, we live in Adelaide, even our pandemics are boring. Um, But, uh, you know, it's okay, okay, you know, we're we're actually got, you know, our kids playing sport at the moment. Uh, You know, there's a little bit of uh, social distancing uh, with regards to you know, you know basketball stadiums, you know one parent watching you know football, you can watch out because it's outdoors. Um, uh-huh. But life is as normal as it can be in a pandemic. You know where we're limited to you know now fifty people gatherings, um, but okay. it's it's a little bit different. Uh, you know with regards to there was um, understanding um, or acceptance that there were some harsh measures that were coming in. Look, we, we still have, uh, you know, pockets of people, you know, protesting and saying, you know, but um, for the most part, it's accepted. Um, and I think this will be the the reality here in Australia for moving forward. I mean, everyone talks about uh, the vaccine, you know, the, right. the, my understanding is that, you know, a vaccine was, uh, you know, the quickest vaccine to, to come out was mumps and it was it took four years to make sure it was all safe. You know, to turn around and say, uh, you know, we'll have a vaccine, you know, at the start of next year, that's going to come with certain caveats about right. the safety, which are which are important to note about, you know, because you sit there and just go, how well will it be tested? Well, you know, four years for months uh, as the, the fastest vaccine. Um, COVID, you know, it's, it hasn't, we haven't been testing for it for, you know, just over a by that stage, it'll be over a year. So there will be concerns to be 
race, and people shouldn't be dismissed by that. Uh, but at the same point in time, um, it will depend on who's actually pushing. Is it, is this to open up, you know, the economy and make sure everything goes back to normal as quickly as possible? Or is this for everyone's safety? And so that will be an interesting balancing act that the governments and, and you know, organisations uh, such as the pathologists and doctors will, will need to manage. But, yeah, that's I think when you've got numbers uh, like the US is going, it's um, it will be really hard to manage. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, you guys can can manage as well as you can. You know, at at the beginning of all of this, uh, back in March, you know, and into April, we had you know all non-essential surgeries were were canceled, and you know, uh, numbers in in the pathology lab really really dropped. And, you know, and business went down. Did you have the same kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we, everything shut down. So you know, people you know were saying, "Oh, pathology should be you know booming," and I said, "Well, only if you're doing you know COVID testing is that the the, you know, the testing." No, uh, right. we had we had uh, public institutions uh, stopping all non-essential surgery. We had private hospitals stopping all you know surgery to um, await a potential you know influx of people. Uh, so you know, ICUs were down to you know minimum people in and you know elective surgery yes stopped so again we don't have just the sheer numbers uh that you have the u.s population um so what happened was is we opened up slowly uh and then you know wards and elective surgery came back as i say they're keeping an eye on numbers you know there's concern in in new south wales so that's a different state that numbers are just starting to creep up when they're talking about, you know, 10, you know, 15, 20. And uh, stage, when, when restrictions go back on, no, they, they go back down and, and sort of say no elective surgery. Uh, hospitals are to, to be on just, you know, high alert. We've even had one or two hospitals closed down, so to speak, with regards to, okay, there's been a, an outbreak with, with healthcare workers, uh, uh, you know, getting the, the infection. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an understanding. but uh, there is an acceptance that there's there's upset about it, but there there mm-hmm. is a somewhat of a an acceptance that this is effectively needed for our hospitals just to manage. Look, if it went on for another you know a year or two, I imagine you would actually have really <laughs> tough decisions to be made by politicians. Like you know there is an a, an economy that's you know, but they're talking about. Uh, you know, billions of dollars being lost because Victoria had to shut down again, and that's one of our most popular states. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a really difficult pandemic to manage. Um, we've right. done we've done well, uh, but it's a it's a testament to to everything shutting down and the population accepting that that is needed to protect our most vulnerable, you know, elderly and people who are immunosuppressed. It's hard because you don't know when the end is in sight. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a balancing act, as I say. The the problem is when a vaccine does become available, that everyone doesn't jump on board with it and just say, right, this is the miracle cure and everything can go back. So um, right, that will be interesting because then you'll see uh, global politics play a bit of a role, and uh, that will be interesting to watch on the on the sidelines. Definitely, definitely. I just have one more one more question for you, and then we can uh, wrap up. So, 
and you and you sort of touched on this earlier that having the additional covid testing it's become a burden on a lot of labs because it's on top of the regular work that we have to do every day at, at least over here have you found something similar like that there with where the additional covid testing is becoming uh not close not overwhelming but definitely close to it yeah so we 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 have to find what what you find is you need qualified staff to be able to work in the molecular area. Yep. Uh, so, yep. you know, specifically infectious molecular, um, you have to have, you know, enough reagent to be able to run through. You have to have the machines to run it. So everything's starting to be pushed, uh, you know, need an extra machine here to get a few extra hundred tests. You know, I mean, the sheer numbers that the US is going to be doing will be probably mind boggling to myself. We're talking thousands, you know, hundreds and hundreds and up to thousands mm. of tests here and that's just because again we've got less population and uh more spread out but um yeah trying to find qualified you know micro uh, biology scientists to be able to run the machines and the tests um absolutely and it'll be interesting because what will happen is well what's what's going to happen when this does eventually you know slow down uh, you know, what, what will molecular look like? What will the hospital system look like? Will we be continuing doing all this, you know, uh, PPE, so the personal protective equipment? Right. Probably we should actually <laughs> keep it. It's actually very yeah. good, you know, practice. Um, but yes, uh, it has stretched the services. And, and the other thing is like, you know, when someone's, an organization's revenue completely drops out, you're still having to keep everyone, you know, employed because it's going to come back. You know, how do you manage a department that's, you know, trying to do other respiratory viruses as well because they're still important, people getting sick. Um, it has been a, a, a challenging environment to, to work in. We've been fortunate again here in Australia because numbers have been able to be kept so, so low that we can do contact tracing. We can do uh, numbers enough to, to know where the pockets are. And, and I guess that's just... a it will be interesting at the end of all this to see which countries have done well because, again, you know, there, there was, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Sweden who uh, said, okay, let the pandic pandemic come through um, with their epidemiologist. And uh, it will be interesting to see if that changed any of the mortality statistics as to, you know, did intervention, like people going to ICU, did that help or did it not? And what people are seeing is us learning about a disease in real time. You know, people talk about, oh, it's droplet spread and now it's aerosol. And, you know, as far as we know, it's droplet. But then, then people turn around and say, oh, you lied. It was like, no, this is us learning, as you say, <laughs> as we're going along. Um, so it will be an interesting, um, I mean, report card, so to speak, of what countries managed it well. Um, did it change the course? And... Uh, unfortunately, this all this is an event in our lifetime. Hopefully, it's the only one, but it won't be the only mm -hmm. pandemic that we have. Um, so, hopefully, we'll be able to learn some lessons from this and 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 uh, understand it moving forward. Yep, yep, I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, th this has been a very fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Travis Brown. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much, Dennis. I appreciate you having me. Big thanks to Dr. Travis Brown. And as always, I'll have links in the show notes to all of the things we talked about today. If you'd like to learn more about them, there will be a link to his podcast, This Pathological Life, as well, and a link to Dr. Brown on Twitter. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at People of Path. 
And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of our upcoming episode with Gina Bond. So you're directly working with the, the medical students. You're, you're teaching them dissection yeah. techniques. Is that, is that right? Yeah, so um, in our lab, we teach first-year medical students, but we also teach second and third-year biomedical scientists, first-year dental students, human osteologists, physicians associates, we also have speech scientists and orthoptic students in. Oh, wow. We okay. sometimes get some bioengineers bio come in as well. Um, so I think it works out as about close to 700 students a week will come in our lab and we'll either do full body cadaveric dissection or we'll look at specimens to do some anatomy study. Um, so it's a wide variety of courses and they all want something different and it's great though to see all those students get excited by anatomy. I love it when they finally work something out. Oh, um, yeah. It's, you know, because at the start it will be me being, oh look, look at that nerve, can you see it? Look how amazing that looks or, you know, oh wow, that muscle looks fantastic and they'll just look at me like you're crazy and then give it a few weeks and you know they'll tell Gina look what I've found and it's it's great that's I love that part of it to hear more from Gina Bond tune in to the upcoming episode of the people of pathology podcast